Let us take a moment to settle ourselves as we enter God's word. Let us pray. Loving and holy God, your word stands true even today. We trust that we find ourselves, our stories, our feelings, our grief and sorrow and joy in your word. So we ask in this time that your spirit would descend upon this place, quiet our hearts and our minds for an encounter with you. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Our first reading this morning comes from Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than its fill of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's second reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verse 14 through 30. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one With the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew knew that you were a harsh man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seeds. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received that what was my own with interest, 
So take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. In her last year at seminary, Christy, a friend of mine, signed up for a class in the pastoral care department. The class was called Confession and Forgiveness from a Pastoral Perspective. The reading list looked great, and the 45 slots in the class filled up pretty quickly. In fact, they filled up the very first day of registration. Really impressive for a three-hour class that takes place at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. If you've been in a 2 o'clock class, that's a long three hours. Now, on the first day of class, everyone was there a few minutes early to get a good seat, books in hand, notes ready to be taken. The professor began instruction by asking the class a question. So what do you all think this class is going to be about today? The most eager students, as is typical, they spoke up first, restating the name of the class in their own words. It's a class about the importance of forgiveness of everyday people. It's a class about God's love, a class about God's grace, a class about God's assurance of forgiveness. Professor listened, nodded along. He then walked up to the chalkboard and in big bold letters, all caps, wrote the word SHAME. For the most part, the class was intrigued. They may not have understood how a class about love and forgiveness would be about shame. The word wasn't even on the syllabus. But they were game. They were game until the end of that first class when the professor told them about the final assignment for the class, a 20-page autobiographical essay about a personal experience of shame. Within days, a third of the class had dropped. That was a story, that was a story they didn't want to tell. So there is the story the great and glorious story. But there's also the story behind the story. And for most of us, it's the story behind the story is the one we we listen to but keep to ourselves. It's the story that says we are not good enough, not smart enough, not good-looking enough, not faithful enough, not courageous enough. It's the story that teaches us, that tells us we just don't have what it takes. It's the story of shame. We don't like to talk about it, but shame is always there, hiding under the surface, lurking in the background, doing everything it can do to convince us that the story, the story of God's love, the story of God's provision, the story of God's salvation is simply not our story. Someone else's maybe, but it's not ours. Shame loves to hide in the dark where it silently but consistently corrupts our relationship with God and with each other, slowly eroding our willingness and confidence to use our God-given gifts in the world. I think 
Shame is evil's favorite weapon in the battle for our souls. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, I think today's passage from Matthew is a lot about shame. It's a story in some sense about shame. Three servants are given a gift from their master before he leaves for a long journey. To one five talents, to one two, and to another one. Now a talent was the greatest unit of accounting in Greek money. A single talent is worth a lifetime worth of wages. So these three servants, even the one talent one, are given everything they need and more to live with boldness and creativity and courage and joy. They have everything they need to live fully and faithfully until their master returns. Not only that, but by entrusting so much to them, the master makes it abundantly clear how he feels about these three servants. He trusts them. He believes in them. He loves them. That is the story. But there's always a story behind the story. And the one I want to explore today is a story of the one-talent servant. Now, the first two servants immediately go out and multiply their talents in the marketplace. They are so thrilled to be entrusted with so much that they can't wait to get out in the world and put it to good use. This incredible gift they've been given to one five lifetimes worth of wages to another two, this amazing gift empowers them to be bold and creative and involved in the marketplace, investing their money in ventures, probably lending some to friends, maybe reinvesting a bit in the world God so loves. This reminds me of an experiment a church conducted several years ago that I've tried to execute to no avail in nearly every church I've served. It's a great idea. To kick off their annual stewardship drive, instead of asking people to give money to the church, this church gave money to the people. Thanks to the generosity of one anonymous donor on Stewardship Sunday, members and visitors alike were told to look under their seats where they found an envelope, unmarked, full of cash. Some envelopes had a $50 bill, some a $100 bill, some $200, and a few envelopes had $1,000 cash. The people were told to take the money with them after church and spend it in a way that would add value to the world in some way. It was really a gift with no strings attached. The goal of the experiment was to empower people to be generous instead of begging them to be. And for that particular congregation, it worked. While most of the money spilled out into the city, into the neighborhood, making an impact in people's lives, the church that year also exceeded their expectations for the stewardship campaign, easily making up the money that they gave away. What I found most interesting about this idea, though, was the resistance I would receive whenever I presented it to a session for discussion. Whenever I pitched this idea to a church I was serving, there was always concern expressed around the table over how the people would spend the money. What if they spent it on themselves? What if they gave it to organizations that don't align with our church's values? What if they don't spend it wisely? 
all interesting questions, but questions that God is not all that concerned with. Three servants are given a lifetime worth of wages in one day. And that seems to communicate to me that God loves them, God trusts them, and God believes in them. The servant who received the one talent, however, probably would have questioned the wisdom of giving envelopes full of cash to members and visitors alike. He might have questioned that practice because I don't think he really believed the story. The story of the master's generosity towards all his servants. He can't believe, for some reason, the story being told because he's living out of a different story. A story that says he's not good enough or smart enough or faithful enough to please his master. So he buries his talent in the ground. A lifetime worth of wages he puts under a rock. His negative view of his master is intertwined with his negative view of himself. And this loop, this knot, stifles his creativity and his joy. So what do we do? How do we be like those first two servants and not the last? How do we overcome the story behind the story, the story that says we don't have what it takes? Well, it's counterintuitive, but theologians and scientists and psychologists would all agree to overcome our stories of shame, stories that try to silence the story of God's love for us. To overcome those stories, we have to be more vulnerable with others, not less. We have to put ourselves out there and take risks. We have to believe that with God, all things are possible, even for us. When Rob Bell was the pastor of a congregation, a big church, after services each and every Sunday, he would sit on the steps up front and talk to parishioners after service. Each and every week, the same woman would come up and talk to him, and while she did, she would hand him a small piece of paper. She would smile, and they would chat for a moment, and then she would walk away. Every Sunday, this happened. The piece of paper was always the same size, about four by five inches, folded, with writing in up the upper inside left corner. Each week, Reverend Bell unfolded the paper while she watched, and then he would read the number she'd written on it. It was always a number. Sometimes the number was big, like 174. Sometimes it was small. He remembers one time when it was two. The number was how many days it had been since she last cut herself. You see, the woman had been struggling with a self-injury addiction for most of her life. But now, for the first time, she had joined a support group at the church that she attended each and every week to move her towards healing and wholeness. It took courage, but she was putting her story in conversation with God's story And it wasn't easy. She'd never been with a guy who hadn't hit her. So when she heard about love, 
It wasn't a concept she was all, familiar, all that familiar with, which made sense. Beaten, hit, abused, neglected, and then told that God loves her unconditionally, without reservation, without her having to do anything to earn it? That's a stretch. Hard to believe, given what she's seen of the world. But there she was, each and every Sunday, fighting back against shame's grip on her life by telling her story and trying with all her might to believe in God's. You seem like you're in a creative mood this morning, so I'd like to try a little experiment this morning here in worship or at home or in the car. If you're in the car, keep looking forward, though. I want you to picture in your mind right now, if you can, take a moment to picture in your mind your greatest moment of shame. Shouldn't take long, right? It's always there. Do you have it? Great. Now turn to someone near you right now and share it with them. Go ahead, I'll wait. I'm kidding. Of course. But did you feel it? Did you feel that terrifying pit in your stomach? That existential fear that if people really knew you, they'd be mortified. That is shame. That's the feeling, the story that says we're not good enough or smart enough or strong enough or faithful enough or courageous enough. That's the story behind the story that tries to make you believe God or others could never love you. And that story is an utter and complete lie. I've shared this with most of you, I think, in small groups, and maybe even in a sermon, but I've long wished that once a year, God would mail a t-shirt to every church member in this country, a shirt that they would have to wear to church that Sunday morning. On the front, it would say, my name is blank, insert your name. And on the back, it would say, I'm struggling with blank, 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 blank. It would list all the things on the back that that particular person was currently dealing with, Things like fear and addiction and doubt and anxiety, you know the list. I wish God would do this once a year because the very things we think would repel people from us are the very things that would help us connect with them. We all struggle with shame. As a pastor, I'm given a front row seat to this reality, and I can't tell you how many times I look out in the pews and see two people sitting next to each other who have the same struggle. If they would only turn and share, their lives would be changed. And shame is so insidious because it severs the very connections we need to believe that we're lovable and have talents to share. Shame isolates us when we most need connection with God and with each other. Shame tells a story over and over again that's just not true. Back to the passage, that one talent servant, lifetime worth of wages, mind you, but that one talent servant is caught. He is caught up in a paralyzing, self-enforcing loop of shame. Shame has convinced him, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that his relationship with his master is tenuous at best, and that he doesn't have what it takes to multiply his one talent in the marketplace. 
Of course, the parable ends. The end of the parable makes it look like the one talent servant is right to think this, that his master is harsh and cruel, and he, he doesn't have what it takes. I mean, the master's response to his burying his talent seems to confirm this. For all those who have, more will be given, and they will have abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a brutal ending to this parable. And I wonder if this brutal ending, this brutal conclusion, isn't the ending of the story, the story of a God who loves us and trusts us and believes in us. I wonder if this difficult conclusion is the ending to the story behind the story. This is a conclusion to the story of shame. Shame's greatest power is that it reinforces itself when its message is believed. We don't think we're good enough for others, so we pull away from them, which of course, of course further isolates us and makes us think more and more that we're unlovable. We don't think we have what it takes to make a difference in the world, in our lives. We separate ourselves from the world and as a result become more and more disconnected from it. We don't think that God loves us. We struggle to believe the good news and in time come to believe that the story of a God of love is a fairy tale and not the gospel truth. We're left with nothing. 20 years of ministry during a significant decline in mainline church membership influence and vibrancy has convinced me of something. I've come to believe that most American mainline churches struggle with shame. Instead of believing the story of a God who loves them enough to entrust them with the good news, they have come to believe a different story, a story that says they are not good enough or relevant enough or smart enough or strong enough or faithful enough to multiply their gifts in the marketplace. And so churches have retreated. They disconnected, and some have buried their talents in the ground, fearful of when the master returns. I don't know exactly where and when this story of shame was implanted into your collective consciousness as a congregation, but I'm here to tell you it is there. I've heard its whispers and conversations with many of you. Somewhere along the way, you started to wonder if you have what it takes to make Christ known in Richmond. Somewhere along the way, you started to wonder if God really loves you as much as you thought God did, and if God has really given you everything you need to make this little corner of the world a better place. Somewhere along the way, you started to believe the story behind the story. You started to believe that story was true. And it's not. The story of the gospel, the story of our faith, the story we hear each and every Sunday makes something abundantly clear. God loves you a lot. God trusts you with a lot. And God has given you more than what you need to serve one another and this world with joy. 
You have everything you need. You have an abundance of talent to share. That's the story. I'm an interim pastor, so we can say these kinds of things, and then a few months later, we're gone. But I really hope for you in the coming years, I hope that you take some risks. Be creative in the ways you feel you should be with your ministry and mission. Own with pride the good and the bad parts of your story, your history, knowing that the good and bad stuff does not change the way God feels about you. Please don't circle the wagons. Get out there and love and serve. Trust that God will multiply your gifts when you put them at work in the world. Choose to live out of and into the greatest story ever told, the story of God's love for you. Amen.